Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is about survivorship, survivorship of cancer. I have the pleasure of meeting Katie Coleman. She was diagnosed with a very rare type of tumor of the kidney that had spread to the liver. She's a software developer and she was working normally and had just a normal life. And then she got hit with this diagnosis. We're gonna go through her journey, how she shared her journey on social media, the pluses, the negatives. And really what you are going to see is that she has an inspiring story, absolutely inspiring story. She is just uh, somebody who, I got to see some of her posts on social media as she was uh, switching careers and jobs. And I was absolutely blown away by her courage, her resilience, her uh, decisions that, you know, life goes on. So being a survivor is not something related to finishing chemotherapy or finishing treatment of the cancer. Being a survivor starts from being diagnosed and, and moving forward. This is really important, and I hope that you are going to enjoy this podcast. Be inspired like Katie inspired me. And um, before I air the episode, I would like to ask you to uh, subscribe to the show and um, uh, rate the show. You can also watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can visit my website, www.chadinabhan.com. And you could follow me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan, as well as Instagram, Chadi underscore healthcare unfiltered. Without further ado, Katie Coleman, an an inspiring, amazing, courageous patient who has taught me a lot, even without meeting her in person. Well, folks, it's really such a pleasure to uh, tape this podcast today with Katie Coleman. Uh, We have not met in person yet. Hopefully we will. Uh, We met actually on social media. And um, if you listen to me right now, you can tell probably that my voice is not 100%, but it doesn't matter. Healthcare Unfiltered always has to keep going day and night in sickness and health. Um, I've invited Katie on the podcast to talk about her journey as a patient who was diagnosed with cancer, uh, literally probably about the time when we were going to be hit by the pandemic, and and really to illustrate her journey and then how she emerged on the other side as a a warrior, as as somebody who is really going to treat the cancer as just simply like any other illness. It's not gonna really stop uh, stop your ambitions. Katie, welcome to the show. Maybe just we'll start by letting people know who you are, uh, where you live, well, whatever you want to tell us about you. I don't want to, don't say anything you don't want to say. I just, <laughs> I was going to say where you live, but then I maybe you don't want to say that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, thank you for the opportunity as well. Um, but so I'll kind of give the backstory of how I got diagnosed. I was diagnosed uh, with a very, very rare stage for kidney cancer um, on New Year's Eve, 2020. Um, and it happened to be just two months after I got married. Um, so my diagnosis kind of started probably a little bit before that. 
Um, I'd been feeling off for about a year and a half. Um, I had tachycardia, I had a rapid heart rate, high, high blood pressure, um, and a couple other symptoms that I was trying to track down with, with doctors. Um, and everybody kept just telling me that I had anxiety. Um, and there was at one point I had kind of had some like hair thinning and I just wasn't feeling well and was wondering, I even asked if this, like, could we rule out cancer? Could it be caused by cancer? Why I'm feeling off and having all these things. And, um, I was told I was too young for cancer. Um, and so that kind of just, how, how old are you? Were you, I was, I was 29 years old when I was diagnosed. I'm, I'm just about to turn 31. Um, and so I was like 27, 28 as I was going through this process and nobody expects the, the young 27, 28 year old um, to be diagnosed with cancer. Um, and so the, I kind of was going through a bunch of different processes and testing and I had a heart rate monitor and stuff like that and just kept being told that it was anxiety, but I felt kind of deep down that something was wrong. Um, and so I was moving my husband and I, like I said, we had just gotten married in October and we were building kind of our dream home for our future family. And I was in the process of changing primary care physicians um, and was seeing a new doctor. Um, and I had pointed out to her that I had started to feel a hardness in my upper right abdomen. Um, and I asked her if it was anything to be worried about. And she told me that it wasn't kind of anything to worry about at the time. And I just didn't feel right about it. Um, and so I went to an urgent care, um, I think either later that day or the day after, um, to ask them about it. And they, in the urgent care, were feeling around, because at the time I thought maybe it could have been like an enlarged liver. I don't know. I was whatever Dr. Google was telling me at the time. Um, and the urgent care thought it could possibly be an enlarged liver. So they had sent me to uh, the ER to get it checked out. Um, and this was kind of, like I said, this was New Year's Eve 2020, and it was kind of the height of the pandemic at the time. Uh, cases were at an all-time high. And I was really nervous about to going to the ER um, because I felt like I felt well physically for the most part. Um, this was just like a weird hardness that I was feeling. And so I, um, ended up going to the ER anyways. I called my husband and said, I just don't feel right about this. I think I'm going to go to the ER. Um, I think he came down. I can't remember if I went back home or if he met me there, but he waited in the parking lot, um, as I went in to the ER and was getting triaged and everything. But I remember as I went in, I was, I felt really bad, um, because, there was a patient outside of my room when I was taken back to a room. And I remember feeling like, oh man, like there's not enough rooms for everybody. And like, I feel fine. I'm here for no reason. I felt like, oh man, I shouldn't be here. Um, but I remember everybody assured me like, no, no, you should be here. Um, so I, they went through the process. They felt the hardness and decided to do an ultrasound. Um, and then they wheeled me back into the ultrasound tech um, and that's instantly where I knew something was wrong. Um, the ultrasound tech was super bubbly when I walked in, um, and we were kind of like chatting back and forth and I laid down on the bed. And then, uh, as soon as she got the ultrasound on me, her face just dropped. Um, and like halfway through, she like let out a big sigh and poor woman was trying to do everything she could to like 
keep composed and not show me that she was kind of stressed by the situation, but I, I could definitely tell she was. Um, what she was seeing at the time, I don't know if you can see this, but I had a 3D rendering of my tumor printed. Um, and so this is after I had already responded to treatment, but this is what she had seen in the ultrasound. It's massive. Uh, it was 12 centimeters at the time I was diagnosed. Um, and so she found that, um, in the ER that obviously sent me, they also saw liver mets, what they thought could be liver mets at the time. So they sent me to CT in the ER, um, and then CT kind of confirmed that we don't, we didn't know for sure. Obviously we weren't going off of a biopsy or anything like that, but I had pretty extensive liver mets and a very large tumor on my kidneys. So um, they thought kind of there in the ER that I would have stage four kidney cancer. Um, so the next few days after that, um, like a total and complete shock, um, because I had never met anybody diagnosed with stage four cancer. Um, I've been very fortunate that most of my family hasn't ever really struggled with cancer. I didn't have any relatives that ever had stage four, certainly. Um, so anything I had ever seen from cancer or anything like that kind of came from the movies and hearing about people kind of passing quickly with stage four. So I spent those next kind of days kind of petrified to say the least, um, and kind of at a complete 180 from where I had been at, um, building our house and everything like that. So, um, I don't know how much further you want me to, to go from there, but yeah. How long did you wait, uh, before you got the biopsy done? Yeah. Um, so everything kind of felt delayed because I think it was a combination of both things. One, I got diagnosed on New Year's Eve. And so it's obviously the holidays. Um, and a lot of people were out of office. Um, I think it was about, I want to say a week or two before I, I got the biopsy and kind of had those first, actually it's probably, it was two or three weeks before I had the biopsy. Um, I had gone for an MRI and my first appointment was about a week or a week and a half later. Um, but they got me set up, uh, with an oncologist. I was living in Utah at the time. So I went to Huntsman cancer Institute originally. Um, and they had set me up with an MRI, um, uh, for my liver and the abdomen. So my tumor is, I have a really, really rare type. It's a metastatic oncocytoma, which if anybody knows anything about kidney tumors, they always say that I misdiagnosed. Um, but I've seen the top specialists. I've gone to MD Anderson. I go to the national cancer Institute, um, on my scans initially, my, my kidney tumor had a giant central scar that's seen in oncocytomas. And so we did an MRI, uh, before doing a biopsy in case it could help rule out, um, maybe benign lesions in my liver. Um, in which case we would have just taken the kidney tumor out. Um, and I would have been fine, <laughs> but so, so, so they biopsied the liver to check that what's in the liver is related to the kidney. And the idea yes. was if what's in the liver not related, they could take the kidney out. Yes. Yeah. So they, once we did the MRI, they couldn't determine if the lesions were metastatic or not. And so we decided to go ahead with the, the biopsy and we biopsied both my kidney and my largest liver lesion, which um, was like six centimeters in my liver. Okay. Um, and so they both came back. Um, they technically came back as an unclassified oncocytic meal, but they did, they did match. And that, that confirmed the, the stage four diagnosis. 
So uh, you went from in November 2020, where you really did not have any diagnosis and you were not feeling well, you were building a home to now February 2021, where you have stage four cancer of a rare tumor of the kidney that has spread to the liver. Mm-hmm. What, do you yeah. do, what do you do next? Um, do you, I mean, did you see somebody to see what the treatment options, what, what happens next? Yeah, so when I was first going through um, the diagnosis process, like I said, I'd been kind of tracking down some issues um, because I hadn't been feeling super great. So I was trying to um, track things down, but I didn't have a lot of involvement um, through the healthcare system. I hadn't navigated very much, so I didn't know what to expect. Um, but I went from my biopsy, I went and met with my oncologist and they suggested um, a treatment plan. I think we were going to do a TKI immunotherapy combo originally. Um, but when we found out how rare, uh, the type of tumor I had was, um, I can't thank my first oncologist enough, um, because I was talking with him about it and kind of just let him know like, Hey, I've, I've heard this is kind of rare. Like, do you mind if I go for second opinions? And I know not everybody's always comfortable with that. Um, and he definitely was, was comfortable. So, um, I went to MD Anderson, um, decided to, um, do a second opinion there. So my husband and I flew out, um, and that whole process, I mean, the whole process of going through and being diagnosed was crazy in COVID in general. My husband couldn't come in with me um, many times. He actually was in the room with me when I got diagnosed with stage four, which was nice in the ER. But um, like all my appointments at MD Anderson, he wasn't allowed to come with me. And so um, it was a very, it was a very odd experience to try to navigate a diagnosis like that. I've actually been very vocal about this, that this was very, very wrong in terms of how people handle the pandemic. You know, when you are sick with something, your family member can wear PPEs and can actually get in the room. The idea of not having anybody with you in the room when you are most vulnerable and your health is being affected, in my opinion, is absurd. Yeah, it it was definitely very difficult to navigate. Um, like I had my husband on FaceTime for all the calls, but obviously it's, it's not the same. Um, he actually came with me for the first time, um, last month. It was the first time he had come with me to MB Anderson and actually got to be in there for my appointment. Um, and so I told him it's kind of weird that, um, I'm like a year and a half into this. And this is the first time he's like actually meeting my oncologist, (laughs) which was kind of a weird, Experience. So what, what was the treatment that they recommended to you? Yeah. So, um, so when I got a second opinion from MD Anderson, they kind of thought the same thing. Uh, it looked like a metastatic oncocytoma, but they couldn't like, technically call it that. Um, why? Why, couldn't, why couldn't they call it that? The, um, like the description of an oncocytoma is they're supposed to be benign. And so there's some controversy on if you can call a tumor that looks like an oncocytoma, uh, an oncocytoma, if it's spread to the liver and become metastatic. Got it. So, um, but everybody I came across basically told me this thing looks exactly like an oncocytoma, which is technically can't really call it that. Um, and so the treatment plan, they weren't really sure of. Um, there's another rare type of kidney cancer called chromophobe kidney cancer that we were kind of modeling my treatment after, um, which there aren't a ton of treatments available 
that work really well for chromophobe currently. Um, and that's something that I actively help raise money for and research. Um, but we were going to go with an approach um, that had worked on some other chromophobe uh, kidney cancers. And so um, MD Anderson wanted me to start on a TKI or like a chemo pill, sometimes they, they call them. And so I started on Cabo Medics in March. Um, yeah, early March of last year. Um, and I was on that treatment for about two and a half months. By itself? Yeah, just by itself. No immunotherapy. Um, they suspect that uh, due to my tumor type that I might not respond to immunotherapy. Um, obviously, nobody knows. Like The type of tumor I have is um, extremely rare, like um, under five uh, case reports worldwide in history. Uh, so nobody really knows for sure, but they suspect that it might not respond well to immunotherapy. So you were on Cabometrics for <clears throat> a couple of months, but then they stopped it because was they stopped working? No. So <laughs> through this time, um, I, I always wanted the tumor out um, because it was huge. I could fill it in my abdomen. <clears throat> um, Originally, when I was diagnosed, everybody told me that surgery was impossible uh, because I had too many liver mets um, and because I was already stage four, that it wouldn't help or prolong my life or anything like that. And so the goal of treatment early on was um, purely to extend my life as long as possible. Um, and that's what I was on Cabo for. But I just knew what I had was was really rare. And so I kept kind of always searching and in the back of my mind, I just always really wanted the tumor out. Like I would even lay on my side. Uh, it's actually funny to think back on before I got diagnosed, like the summer before I got diagnosed, I had lost a bunch of weeks. I was exercising and eating healthy to try to kind of solve my own problems. Um, and I had lost some weight and I was laying in bed one day and I said to my husband, like, huh, isn't it crazy? Like when you lose weight and all of a sudden, like your ribs poke you when you lay down. And he gave me this look like, no, ribs aren't supposed to poke you when you, when you lay down, but I kind of just brushed it off. Um, but I now realized that that was the tumor, um, that was poking me. And so it was uncomfortable. I always wanted it out. Um, and so I never kept, I always kept looking for other options. Um, and one day as I was browsing on social media, because after I got diagnosed, I became quite active on, on social media and in different cancer groups and speaking with other patients. One day I came across um, this post um, that somebody had posted on another patient's page uh, that I was friends with of a bright orange GTR uh, that was raising money for rare kidney cancers. Um, and I, at the time, um, I before I got my new job, I had worked in motorsports. I built software for racetracks um, and had worked at different racetracks for 15 years. And so I thought it was kind of crazy, this bright orange GTR raising money for like the extremely rare type of kidney cancer um, that I had, not mine specifically, but another rare type. And so I reached out to that organization, just kind of hoping to connect network and raise money for kidney cancer um, through our common motorsports networks. And as I was talking to him, that organization was called Driven to Cure. Um, and it was founded by a young patient named Andrew who had HLRCC, another rare type of kidney cancer. 
and his dad was running it at the time. Um, and as we were speaking, his dad found out how rare my type of kidney cancer was. And so he decided to put me in touch with the top experts in kidney cancer at the National Cancer Institute, the National Institutes of Health. Um, so after we got off the phone, he sent an email to Dr. Linehan at the NCI. And I had an email in my inbox the next morning from them saying that they were interested in taking a look at my case um, and that it would move to a surgical route might be possible through them. Um, so I was on Cabo for two and a half months until I kind of went through this transition and got in touch with the National Cancer Institute where my treatment plan changed to a surgical route. So change to surgical route of the primary tumor. And the liver mets. Well, how many liver mets did you have? Uh, about 20, which is crazy. Um, they can't take 20 liver mets, can they? Yeah, so not quite. Um, they Nobody else would have touched me um, for this surgery. Um, and I'm extremely grateful for the NCI and the fact that they were willing to take a risk on me. Um, especially because I had, I've been told at least five other times uh, that surgery was oh, not possible. I, I get the resection of the primary tumor. I think, you know, that is different, but I think how could they resect 20 liver mets? Yeah. So when they looked at my scans, my tumors were all kind of, um, they were kind of encapsulated. In, I don't know if I'm describing that correctly, but um, they weren't super invasive into the liver and, and going into the, the, the tissue around kind of just these little circle, um, lesions that I had. And so I had, um, like four larger liver mets, um, one was six, um, centimeters, and then they went down to about, um, one to two centimeters. And then I had a bunch that were about a centimeter or less. And so in my initial surgery, we took out my right kidney in the primary. Um, we did several wedge resections of my liver, um, which I think got about 10 of the tumors. And then we ablated uh, five tumors in that surgery as well. Um, and then when I had my follow-up scans about three months later, that's when they realized that there was a few tumors um, that were like one centimeter or less, most of them were around like three to five millimeters that weren't seen during surgery. Um, and, but they didn't think they were new. They were on my scans the whole time. Um, they just weren't seen because they were so small before. And so, um, I still had those, we went back and ablated some of those in November. Um, and then I'm still watching some, so that's why I'm, I'm not technically in remission right now and still, still stage four, cause I still have some, some liver mets. That's November, 2021. Yes. Yep. So you're not getting any treatments right now in terms of pills or anything. You just had the, what I would call it radical surgery. Yeah. And ablation. Um, and then now they're monitoring you. Yeah. It's a very, very unique situation. Uh, there's, it's kind of weird. I, I always kind of think of myself as like, I consider myself both the luckiest and kind of unluckiest person in the world um, because I had this benign tumor that was never, ever supposed to spread. Um, and that's pretty unlucky. But at the same time, a lot of other patients 
um, wouldn't have qualified for the surgery that I did. Uh, um, possible because it's not considered very malignant. That's why they thought removing it surgically and ablating it might actually help. Yeah. Katie, what, um, <clears throat> so now you're on a monitoring phase um, and, and I hope this lasts for, for decades, but um, when did you decide that you want to share your story on social media? Because I do think that um, it's it's no easy task uh, to, to go on social media and, and share such a vulnerable and private information with the entire world. Um, take me through what made you make that decision and, and how did you do that? And, and were you afraid of the reaction? Yeah, um, so I started sharing very, very early on in my diagnosis. Um, I literally made a post, I think like the second or third day after I knew I um, had cancer and asked folks to help me name my, my tumor to help try to like put a positive spin on things and try to find something to, to keep me more upbeat about. But um, I decided to share because, so I'm very introverted and I was a very private person uh, before my diagnosis. Um, but when I got diagnosed, as I mentioned before, I didn't have any experience navigating the healthcare system. I didn't know anything about cancer at all. Um, all I knew is like what I'd seen in the movies and stage four was terrifying. Um, and I didn't know what to expect. I didn't have anybody to talk to, to know what to expect. And so uh, there was two reasons I started sharing. The first was I decided right after I got diagnosed in December, I was going to share everything I was going through, what the scans were like, what, like how many times I was having to get labs done, what the biopsy process was like, everything online. So that if, what, were, what was your goal of sharing though? Like what was, yeah. what, what were, you know, as you share this, what were you trying to hope accomplish? Yeah. So my goal with that was that if anybody came behind me um, who got diagnosed and also didn't know what to expect, that they could almost have a blueprint or an example to look at to say, okay, this is what I can expect for an MRI. And this is what I can expect for a CT scan. And just kind of to help share that whatever the process was going to bring, uh, what that journey looked like, especially because I kept hearing over and over again that like continue to live your life with cancer and people live their life with cancer. Um, but I hadn't seen that happen. Easier said than done, right? Yeah. And so I wanted to um, give an example of that. The other reason was because what I was diagnosed with was so incredibly rare. There wasn't any information for me to go off of. I also decided to share. That's also why on Twitter, like I post my full medical records. I've got pictures of my tumors up there, all my pathology were, and were slides. You, were you nervous that... Um, you were working at the time, I think you said software. Uh, yeah, software engineer. <laughs> right. Um, were you nervous that, you know, your employer is going to see that and, and the possible reaction to this? I wasn't. Um, I was in a very, very fortunate spot uh, with that. Um, the company I was working for previously, I had been there for about... Um, Oh, geez, like six years at the time, uh, six to seven years at the time. And it was a startup when I joined. Um, I was a very, very early employee. And so I had a really great relationship with the founders and, and all of my coworkers. And so I told them immediately when I was diagnosed and I felt very supported. Um, I did have a phase 
where I worried that like, because I was stage four, I was going on uh, short-term disability so that I can move to Texas to be closer to MD Anderson. And I was worried I wasn't going to be able to work again and that they, they wouldn't want me to come back. Um, and I was a little bit worried about what that would do to my career going forward. Were you, were you living in, by the NCI or by in, in Texas? Where were you living at the time? Um, so I was living in Utah. And right. then once I got diagnosed and started treatment, I moved down to Texas. Um, I live in Austin, um, but I was going to Houston for MD Anderson. Sure, sure. Um, so, so, so you, um, you shared that with them and you could, you could probably appreciate that maybe there are some other patients who may not have a very supportive work environment. Yeah. Um, I think you were fortunate that your colleagues at work, they were very supportive and, and so on, but then you made a decision to switch careers. Yeah. So how did this? Uh, yeah. So that was kind of a crazy transition for me. Um, and it was something that I thought a lot about. And I definitely was much more concerned about my diagnosis with a new job or a new employer than what I was coming from. Um, but as I was going through this process and kind of navigating the, the healthcare system as a both a patient and a software engineer, there was this part of me that would get so frustrated by some of the inefficiencies in healthcare and kind of the lack of tech in healthcare. Um, and one of those for me, because I have such a unique case is I have lots and lots of physicians and everybody uses a different EMR. Somebody's on my chart. Um, somebody else is on a different system. And so I had this giant binder that I was using to keep track of like all of my doctors, the nurses lines, medical record numbers. Um, and it was extremely hard whenever like I had a side effect that um, I needed to uh, report or I needed to get new records over to somewhere else. Tracking down all that paperwork was hard. And so I, um, right before I went in for my ablations last November, I decided to build an app uh, for myself to manage all of that. Um, and I basically built an app that allowed me to keep all my providers all in one place, put my notes in there. Um, and then I eventually added several features on later down the line. But through that process, as I was working on this app, I kind of realized that I had much more of a passion to build software that could help other patients um, and help them navigate the process a little bit better. And so I decided to go part-time um, at the job that I was previously at so I could spend more time focusing on building software for patients and um, building content um, online and just kind of sharing and helping other patients. Um, and so I kind of transitioned. I didn't expect to go back to work full-time as quickly as I did. Um, I wasn't looking for a job. Um, but I told myself if the only exception to me going back to work would be if I had a company in the healthcare tech field reach out, um, that I would kind of entertain the idea of, of going to work because I wanted to build software to help patients. And so that opportunity kind of presented itself and I took the transition from there. So as you took that transition, I mean, having a new job, a new career while you're diagnosed with stage four cancer, regardless of where the cancer is coming from, must be pretty unnerving as you, I don't know how the process works in terms of an interview, not an interview. I don't know how this actually happened, but 
But I presume you shared all of the information with your employer, uh, prospective employer. Number one is, did you, were you worried that this might affect your opportunity to get the job? And number two, going back to when I first started the episode, um, that's really what initially struck me in what you posted, because a lot of people were a little bit surprised that you are switching careers while you're being diagnosed with stage four cancer. And I think you went on social media and said, you know, just because I have stage four cancer does not mean I just sit home and don't do anything. Take me through those two events. Yeah. So I definitely was nervous um, about going to a new employer because, um, I mean, they can't discriminate against you because you have stage four cancer explicitly. Um, but of course, like going into a diagnosis, they can, they can come up with another excuse. <laughs> yes, exactly. My first thought was like, okay, well, like the minute I tell anybody, they're going to say, oh, okay, well, why would we want to employ somebody that we don't know how long they're going to be here? Um, and so, like I said, I was in a very, very unique situation. I realized how fortunate I am because I didn't need to work full-time. Um, I kind of had another job. I was working part-time. And so that gave me the opportunity to test this theory of being transparent um, and how that might work. And so the recruiter reached out to me and I initially... I never respond to recruiters. I have tons of recruiters in my inbox um, and I never respond to them, but I randomly decided to respond to this one. And I basically planned to tell them like, thanks, but no thanks, because the only positions um, I'm really looking for right now is if there was something in the healthcare tech field. And he had let me know that this position was for a company kind of in the digital health space. Um, and so, as I emailed back and forth with him, learning more about the position, I was straight up front right out the gate with the recruiter um, because I decided if this was a, an opportunity I was gonna take, um, I was gonna lead with my diagnosis so they knew kind of what to expect from the get-go. So I just told the recruiter up front, I said, hey, like I, I have stage four cancer. Um, like here's my backstory. Um, I don't find it as a weakness. Um, I think that's what I mentioned in the, the tweet. My diagnosis has empowered me um, and given me confidence in a way that I, I didn't have before <laughs> I was diagnosed. And so I see it as a strength um, and it pushes me to want to do more and live life longer in the best way that I possibly can. Um, and so I led with that right out the gate and let the recruiter know. And it, it wasn't an issue um, with the recruiter. And when they had, they had spoken with the company as well, it, it wasn't an issue with them. And so they wanted to kind of proceed through the interview process. Um, but I was transparent with everybody I spoke to um, through the process, kind of what, leading with that info. What was, your what was the reaction that you received on social media when you actually kind of told people uh, that you are starting a new job, new career, and uh, were, you know, just take me through the reaction that you've received on social media, because frankly, you and I know, you know, we can't control social media. There are plenty of good people and plenty of bad people. But I think in your situation, what's pretty interesting is, did people embrace it? Did people were shocked? Um, 
because I want to take from here and talk about survivorship a little bit. Tell me the reaction you received on social media. Yeah, so it was both the majority of com comments were very supportive um, and very kind and um, people kind of encouraging me. But there was kind of the other half of the comments were people telling me not to disclose my diagnosis, um, that I'm making a mistake, that I am going to lose my health care or that they're not going to want me um, if I have cancer. There was also several comments um, that almost implied that like I was a charity case <laughs> and that I only got the job because they felt bad for me. Um, I see. Which like I'd worked very hard on my career and um, I taught myself how to code and become a software developer. And so sometimes those ones uh, felt a little bit like, no, I actually like, I put in the time to build this career for myself and that's what the backing is on. But there, there definitely was a mixed response, but behind all those comments, I could see why there was a mixed response. A lot of those comments were from patients who had been discriminated against, um, which was very hard to read and see. Like it, it breaks my heart for the other patients out there who haven't had my experience, um, who have disclosed their, disclosed their diagnosis to an employer and either been let go um, or torn down for a position. Um, so like I said, I, I had a very unique situation, but I realized that's not the case for everyone. But, but in essence, really the underpinning of all of this is that such a diagnosis should not put a pause on life. Yeah, definitely. By you moving forward and getting a new opportunity and a new career, you've really illustrated that. Um, you know, you hear a lot in the field of cancer about survivorship programs and survivors and so on. As somebody who was diagnosed with a rare tumor, stage four tumor and so on, what does that term mean to you? And what's your impression about these survivorship programs that you hear about? Yeah. Um, so I haven't ever been a part of like survivorship programs specifically, but I'm very involved in like patient groups on Facebook. Um, and honestly, part of that is what led me to even have the courage to go for another position. I'd spoken with other patients that had stage four cancer and some of them had switched careers or I'd watch them go through, um, the process of a new job. And so I think watching them go on and live their life, um, set an example for me, uh, cause I certainly wasn't always, um, super positive. Uh, when I first got diagnosed, especially those first few months, um, I was very down and depressed and, um, like felt like my life was over, even though I was kind of going through this process. And so, I think kind of the importance of survivorship is sharing our lives. Um, and that's why I share so publicly is because knowing that as a patient newly diagnosed, I was looking to other patients to see how they were living their lives um, and watching them carry on with their lives, regardless of their diagnosis. And so. But survivorship, oftentimes people equate survivorship with the time from finishing treatment. Yeah, and I think obviously you're an example why this term is flawed because you still have disease, but you are a survivor. And I think before we went on the air, you did mention that the term survivor was a little bit initially was a little bit uneasy uh, on you. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and, and, and how you viewed it? Yeah, definitely. So when I was first diagnosed, I remember hearing the term survivorship and it honestly made me really sad. Um, I 
didn't like using that term for myself. I almost felt like an imposter anytime, like I said, cancer survivor, because as a stage four patient, you have cancer um, in your body. And most of the time with stage four, like it's not expected that that disease, you want to slow it, um, but there's not a lot of cures in stage four cancer. And so I always felt like I'm not a survivor um, because I still have cancer in my body. Um, and over time, that um, description kind of evolved for me. And I did realize that you're a survivor kind of from the day you get diagnosed um, and survivorship is about living your life, not necessarily being disease-free. Yeah. And I think that's really important. I think some of the reaction you got on social media saying like, why are you doing this? You already have stage four cancer. Why are you doing this? And I think you basically said, you know, screw you. I'm going to do this because I'm going to live my life. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the response that I get a lot to is people always ask me, why are you working? Like if you have stage four cancer, why are you working? And I would be off on a beach somewhere enjoying my final days. Um, and I really struggled honestly, early on in my diagnosis, with the same thing, uh, wondering like, okay, I have stage four cancer. I'm, I should be off spending all my money on these vacations, checking off my bucket list and doing all the things. Um, but those things were stressful for me, especially in the middle of COVID with flying and, and doing all these things with an active cancer diagnosis wasn't exactly ideal. Um, I started to really focus on what made me happy. And I've always loved to learn new things. I've always really enjoyed working. Um, and so to me, survivorship means doing what you want to do uh, with your life. And for me, that's working and doing things that I feel um, are contributing to society. Um, and so that's why I choose to work instead of spending my time on, on a beach vacation somewhere kind of thing. It's just it's what I like to do. But you still have to take a vacation. That's an order. Yes. All right. I will. Um, and then, you know, I mean, for the most part, really the reaction was positive. I mean, they've embraced your decision and so on. Um, how, I mean, how would you uh, categorize or classify your experience on social media in general? Uh, I think there are pluses and negatives, but uh, as you have been on social media, what, would you say this was a positive thing, negative thing, neutral? Yeah, it's absolutely a positive thing. Um, social media completely changed my life with my diagnosis. Um, I wouldn't be in the position that I am right now, not on treatment, if it wasn't for social media. That's how I found Driven to Cure. And that's how I got to the NCI and got to surgery. Um, and so I accredit social media with a lot of that. Um, it's kind of odd being in my position because... When I tell people I share my story on social media, a lot of people don't like social media these days, and there's a lot of negativity around social media. And I don't see a lot of that as a patient. I, I do have people that post negative comments every now and then on, on my posts. Um, but for the most part, I'm on a side of social media with other patients that is very uplifting. Um, some of the other patients I've met are just incredible support systems for each other. And so it's been very, very beneficial for me. Um, and it's, I think a completely different side of social media that a lot of people kind of just interacting with their everyday lives are kind of interacting with. So for me, it's been very positive. 
So what's uh, what's next for you? How often do you see your doctors now? And um, you know, you you don't go to the NCI anymore. You're just at MD Anderson. So how how often do you go? How often do you travel from Austin to Houston? Yeah, so I'm kind of kind of at both um, still. So I my next set of scans will be at the end of June. So we're doing surveillance scans every three months to keep an eye. We have some spots that we know were too small to treat um, during my last ablations. And so we've just been watching those. They've been stable my for six months now, I think. That's great. Um, they, so we've just been watching them. Um, the plan is to probably ablate those if they grow at any point. Um, so in June, we'll rescan if there's any growth. Um, after each one of my scans, MD Anderson looks over and reviews everything, but so does the NCI. Right. Um, and if it grows, the NCI likely will be the ones that, that do the ablations since they did the original surgery and kind of know where everything's at. Right. What's uh, maybe the, the last question I have, you know, you were diagnosed, treated and so on during once in a hundred years pandemic. Um, how, I, I know that's like a very, very, very broad question, but, you know, maybe in, in few sentences, um, what was the impact of COVID-19 on the entire journey? Yeah, it, it was really hard as a patient, um, not having my husband there, uh, again, for kind of all of the bad news that you receive um, as a patient navigating a cancer diagnosis was really hard. Um, and then even some of the little things that you don't think about, like, when people get diagnosed with cancer, you want to be supported by like your friends and family. And, um, right after I got diagnosed, like I couldn't see them. Like my family dropped off like a, a care box to me and was shipping me stuff because we have a large family and we didn't want to do like big, large family get togethers around my diagnosis. Um, and so that was, that was very hard to navigate and not be able to have those really close relationships, um, go to like big family parties and stuff like that, that, I normally would have been going to, um, as well as I had to plan my life kind of around my scans and treatment, um, because I didn't want to catch COVID anyways, but I also couldn't catch COVID and delay a scan or a treatment that I had upcoming. So I was going for, in the beginning, I was going for appointments like every two to four weeks. Um, and so if I caught COVID that was going to have to be pushed out by three times, three weeks, anytime I caught it. So, um, definitely meant a lot of just staying at home and <laughs> hanging out with my husband, um, and a lot less social interaction to kind of get through everything. Uh, look, your, your story is really inspiring. I think the the two take home messages that I took from the story. Number one is, you know, survivorship is not at the time of finishing therapy survivorship doesn't have a time limit you know you you know basically people need to hopefully live their life and like you said do what they actually feel is important to them and, and number two is that um i think the positive reaction of sharing uh very intimate details of a very difficult illness um you know you you put your you put your vulnerability on the line and I think, you know, again, from listening to you, you did that to help other people. And that's really commendable and is, is very helpful because I could imagine that there are people who just feel uncomfortable 
doing that. But you said, you know what, I'm going to do that. It's probably going to help somebody. And and I think you also got lucky with the employers that you had because Absolutely. you were able really to maintain your job originally and you found another job and there were really no issues. Lots of stories here. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I consider myself, like I said, I, I feel very, very fortunate to be in the position that I am. I know my journey is different than many other stage four patients, um, but we're all kind of along the same journey. Once you get diagnosed with cancer, it's, it's all kind of the same yeah. process as you go through, but I do realize what a unique situation that I've had. Um, <laughs> and I try to do whatever I can to try to give back to other patients because of that, because I know I could be in a very different situation right now. Um, okay. and while I feel well, I should be giving back. Is there anything else I should have asked you about that you think is really important to share with listeners and viewers? We will have this on YouTube as well as on uh, the podcast outlets. Um, I don't think so. I think my biggest thing that I always worry about when I share my story, just because I have had such a very unique diagnosis and treatment plan is just that, that I am in a very unique situation and every patient every patient's journey and treatment is, is very different. Um, and so it's always really important to evaluate your current situation. I was able to take these risks because I was in a unique situation where I didn't need a job. Um, and I always encourage patients to like use their diagnosis and, and try not to think of it as such a negative thing all the time. Like I said, mine really empowered me and gave me a strength that I didn't think that I had before. But at the same time, um, make sure you're conscious of like, you're in a safe place to share that information. There's like you mentioned, there's some employers that wouldn't be supportive in situations like that. And I always want to make sure that I support patients where I can, um, and like sharing my life. But at the same time, I, I want to make sure that everybody knows that they have individual treatment plans and so my, my last question to you is, as you see doctors on social media interacting and sometimes arguing, sometimes screaming at each other, sometimes, you know, being silly, all of these things, as a patient, what is your reaction to the med Twitter or onk Twitter or what you want to call it? Um, what's, what have you, what's the good, bad and ugly, I guess? Yeah. Um, I personally love it. Um, but I think that's because I like, there's a few things that you might see on there sometimes that as a patient, like, um, might be hard to see maybe talking about like overall, uh, survival stats, very, um, kind of like nonchalantly, I guess. I don't know the proper term that I want to use there, but kind of matter of fact, um, can kind of hurt when like you're the patient with that diagnosis. Um, but I love Twitter. I mean, I share all of my scans, my slides, everything on Twitter, um, because I want other people to be able to learn from my case. Um, I figure what's the point in, in having a rare case if somebody can't learn something from it. Um, I, I like it. I, I love the fact that so many doctors are out there collaborating with each other, even if they're not always agreeing on things. I'm not somebody that thinks everybody should agree on everything all the time. I think that you learn more. Um, and, you push yourself by having opposition. And so 
Um, I, I, do think, think, well, I do think it's important, though, that physicians recognize that patients do see that. Yes, that part is... Be, is be, sensitive, be sensitive to patients' needs, language, words matter. Yes. Social media, and, and you could be that patient uh, that is watching this. So I think, um, like you said, this blunt use of certain terminology may not always really sit well with patients. And I think it's very important for us to recognize that. Yeah, I especially think um, like sharing patients' cases online, um, especially if <laughs> patients don't know that they're being shared, but they can identify themselves, um, even if other people might not be able to identify them. I'm in a situation where those things don't bother me, but I wasn't always in that position. And I could definitely see where other patients, like if my family came across something um, that maybe like a doctor posted about my case online, um, if it wasn't positive, like that could not only affect me, but my family as well. Um, so I definitely think that there's an area to, to be careful around there. Yeah. Well, um, Katie, this is what an inspiring journey. I really appreciate you sharing this with me, with listeners and just, uh, getting out of your comfort zone and just being vulnerable. And I think vulnerability is a definition of being human. Um, and it also gives us a little bit more of appreciation and recognition to the to to life and not taking anything for granted i think that's really important so uh, i really appreciate you spending some time with me on healthcare unfiltered and uh, i want to wish you the best of uh luck and i would like to hopefully bring you back maybe in um, in several months and just chat about something else yeah i appreciate that i've i've really appreciated the opportunity and Apologize if my my story was a little scattered there. There's a lot to plug in no, there, but uh, I, I appreciate it's, it. It's it's perfect, and I appreciate you sharing it with us. Yeah, thanks. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. This was amazing. I really appreciate Katie taking time over busy schedule and sharing with me. A vulnerable story, you know, sharing these stories is not always easy. It just shows you that being vulnerable is okay. And sharing that vulnerability with the outside world is actually a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. So I appreciate Katie talking to us about her cancer journey, about her survivorship, about her reaction to social media, and what she is doing to help other people and other patients who may be in the same situation. I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate the show on all podcast outlets. You can write a brief review, which will certainly help others find the show easily. Also, you can visit my website at shadinabhan.com and you could uh, watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. This was amazing. And before I let you go, I would like to leave you with two inspirational quotes that I really like. She stood in the storm and when the wind did not blow her way, she adjusted her sails. And the other one, cancer didn't bring me to my knees. It brought me to my feet. Until next time, take care.